0: Uh, it may have been even more strange than the original video was without the sound on it. So that's, uh, that's yeah, that right there. Um, well, uh, one of my, I had two jokes about the video. It didn't show, so I can't go those jokes anymore. All right. We're just going to go on. Is that good? <laughs> Y'all are supposed to laugh at that. Okay. Help me, support me a little bit. Okay. Um, well, actually, that's probably as much laughing as we're going to do today because today we're talking about God's wrath. All right. (laughs) That's actually kind of funny to me. I don't know why. But now some of you are like, no, why did I invite my friend today? Okay. Um, Why do we have baby dedication where families are here? We're talking about God's wrath. But here's what I think, okay? I think that uh, God's wrath is a very misunderstood characteristic of God. I think that by the time that we're even done with this sermon, and we're not even going to begin to dig into the depths of the wrath or the justice of God, but even by the time that we're done with the sermon, I think that and I hope that we'll have a greater appreciation for the God who is a wrathful God. All throughout Scripture, we see that over and over and over again. And I think that we try to skirt around it. And I hope that by the end of the sermon, we'll be able to see that it's not really necessarily something that we should skirt around or avoid. In irony, it's actually something that we should enjoy, particularly as the household of God. If you believe in Jesus, this should be a very beautiful thing to you because of many ways, okay? Um, Before we dive in, though, I have one really quick announcement, Um, not necessarily a part of the service, but um, with all of the fires that were happening um, down in Bastrop County and the surrounding areas, and now with all the rain, we know there was flooding there recently. Um, There's been many homes that have been destroyed. In fact, uh, somebody who used to attend our church and who ended up moving out there to help start up a camp, um, Brian and Claire Turner at Camp Wilderness Ridge, uh, their homes got burned down. A lot of the camp got burned down after they had rebuilt it three years before the you know former fires. And so anyway, there's a lot of work that um, will probably end up needing to be done, uh, families that need to be shepherded and hosted. And so if you desire to do that, if you have a heart to kind of um, try to connect with what's going on there and serve in different ways, Mark Nodin is in the back. Mark, can you raise your hand? He's actually on the soundboard today. And so, if you'd like to connect with him after service, uh, please go see him. He can help you learn how to get involved in ADRN, it's a Austin Disaster Relief Network. The weld partners with them in many different ways. And so, yeah, we'd love to have you partnering with us and with them. All right? We good? Good deal. If you have your Bibles, grab them, go to the book of Obadiah, all right? That is our one-hit wonder today. In case you're a guest and you're wondering why we show tainted love before the sermon, okay, it's because we're in the middle of a series called One-Hit Wonders, and that was a one-hit wonder. Um, and what we're looking at is the one-chapter books of the Bible and kind of how they relate to our life and what they mean for us even today. So Obadiah, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, if you physically don't own a Bible, we actually want you to take that one and keep that. That's our gift you you. We want you to have the word and be able to use it. So please feel free to um, take that home with you if you would wish. You can also follow along on your smartphone if you want. Uh, if you have the YouVersion app, or some people call it the Bible app, underneath uh, the live section where you click on the tabs, type in the Well Austin. You can follow along that way. Or if you uh, don't have that, um, but you want to type a link that will be up here in a second in your browser, then you can feel free to type that in your browser. You can follow along. There'll be all the notes, uh, Uh, places for uh, scripture reference, poll questions, stuff like that. Um, So out of curiosity, okay, uh, how many of you can you recall ever hearing a sermon preached on Obadiah? Raise your hand. One, two three, four, four, five, five, six-ish. Okay. All right. That's impressive. I actually thought that number would be one or zero. Okay. Um, we're in church, so you could be honest about this question. How many of you didn't even know that Obadiah was a book in the Bible? Raise your hand. There you go. Several. Okay. Like, all right. So this is a, a random book. All right. Um, Obadiah is the only one chapter book in the whole Old Testament. Okay. And so I'm going to give you some really quick background to kind of catch you up as to what we're actually going to be talking about today, because we're entering right in the middle of a story, all right? So uh, I'm going to start in Genesis, so we'll see how quick really quick is, all right? But um, God called Abraham uh, as a man out of his country to go father many nations, God said. So he gave him a promise to go be the father of many nations. And so Abraham got called by God this nation would eventually be Israel, who we know is Israel, and that would be God's chosen people. The reason we call them God's chosen people is because they were meant to uh, submit to God and to follow God, and in their submission and in their following of God, they were meant to be a light to the nations around them, all right? Here, stay focused so you don't get lost. We're trying to fix the PowerPoint for you, all right? But stay focused. I don't want you to get lost, okay? They were meant to be a light to many nations around them, and so they were meant to lead many people into the understanding of God because of how they submitted to and followed God. So this was supposed to be Israel's call, all right? Israel had a son with his wife, Sarah, who was called Isaac, and that was called the promised child or the chosen child as well. So from Isaac, you have Jacob and Esau, all right? Jacob and Esau were brothers, and Jacob, like Isaac, like Abraham, was God's chosen to bring forth the nation of Israel. But as the uh, 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 children continued on, the promises of God got deeper and deeper. So he told Abraham, you'd be a father to many nations. But as Jacob comes around, he actually begins to give hints that not only will you be the father of many nations, but you'll actually be the one who is bearing forth the Messiah or the Savior of the world. And so through Abraham's lineage, through Isaac's lineage, through Jacob's lineage comes Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so you have this this sweet, uh, beautiful promise about the birth of Messiah. So Um, Jacob and Esau were there. Esau, unlike Jacob, uh, was the father of his own nation, but not the chosen child, not the child of the promise. And that nation ended up being Edom okay? And so Esau was the father of the Edomites, and Edom was frequently at war with Israel, and often kind of derided Israel on several different occasions. We'll get to that in a second. Um, Israel went on to be enslaved to Egypt. If you are familiar with church, you know that story where uh, they were enslaved 430 years, and then in comes Moses and says, hey, let my people go. And there was 10 plagues, and after that they exited, and they went through the Red Sea, and then they were traveling around the wilderness. This is now God's chosen nation Israel about to be established as a nation as they were traveling around they were as you could imagine in the middle of the desert they were in need they had just came out of Egypt and lo and behold they were in the desert for 40 years okay well while they were in the desert they asked the Edomites or Esau for help And so several times in the book of Exodus, you see Israel going to Edom and saying, hey, will you help us out? Or could we just pass through your land? We're not going to take anything. We're not going to ruin anything. It's just a quicker route to get there. Can we pass through? And over and over, Edom said no, and actually often mocked them and even uh, sent false prophets to try to confuse them. And so once again, we see this as a common theme throughout the Bible that Edom and Jacob were somewhat at war. God eventually establishes Israel as a powerful nation. Uh, through Joshua, the judges, then on to King David, King Solomon. They became a very powerful nation. Um, Often in Israel's prime, they were indeed a light to the nations around them. Okay, so Israel was indeed uh, what God had called them out to be, where they saw uh, uh, God, they worshiped him, and they led many other people to worship that same God. However, as you're well aware, uh, we as humans uh, are pretty messy when we tend to run things and when we tend to be in power, okay? And Israel was pretty messy frequently. So they had some good kings, but most of the kings were bad. They turned away from the Lord, all right? Well, what happened was a civil war broke out in Israel, all right? You still tracking with me? Okay, civil war broke out in Israel, and it kind of divided the nation into the northern and the southern kingdom, or Israel and Judah, Okay, so Israel became the northern nation and Judah became the southern kingdom. And Judah is where we get the term Jews from alright? Well, Israel ended up being uh, taken into captivity, the northern nation, by Assyria. Assyria were very, very miserable captors, alright? They cut open the pregnant women's stomachs. That's great for Child Dedication Day, right, Um, They uh, killed the babies. They were very, 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 very bad captors, alright? On the other hand, Judah continued as a nation for a while, but like Israel, they too rebelled against God. And then a nation called Babylon came, and they actually took Judah into captivity as well. However, Babylon was a very good captor. They actually left some people to kind of run the nation of Judah. They didn't kill everybody. They just tried to assimilate them more so, all right? And so you have this divide here. Israel would never become a nation again. In fact, Israel and Assyria kind of mixed and made the Samaritans. And if you're familiar with scripture, then you see why there's that uh, drama once we get into the New Testament, okay? But the Jews, they actually would recover, and Obadiah is in the middle of this happening right here. Obadiah is writing right after the Jews had been taken into captivity to Babylon, and they knew that there was a promise that they would return. They, they knew that God still had to send the Messiah through them, but there's all this darkness, all this confusion, all this frustration, All right, that's where we're at in the middle of our story. It is dark, it's depressing times. If you can think about, you know, let's just say our nation gets taken into captivity by another nation and and they they end up destroying us and they end up ruining us as a nation they scatter us around. There's only a few of us left. You would be in a little bit of turmoil and that's where we're at is in a lot of bit of turmoil, okay? So um, with that in mind, go ahead and flip over to Obadiah because he's going to be writing exactly to this. Obadiah, uh, I was gonna say chapter one, but there's only one chapter, (laughs) all right? Start there in verse one. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Let me pause right there. Edom, once again, was a miserable brother to Judah as they're being taken into captivity. You'll see more on this in a minute. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. All right, so God is coming right out of the gates, no introduction, just straight fury and judgment, right? He's kind of like Ronda Rousey. He doesn't mess around in the ring, okay? He's going right in. Six of you got that reference, but that's okay. We'll keep working. Um, in verse one, uh, it says that Edom is actually helping Babylon take Israel into captivity. That's what's going on right now. So, Edom, instead of being a big brother who helps, comes in and actually helps Babylon deliver uh, the Jewish people into captivity. And so God said that he was going to go to war against Edom because of this. And that Edom would not just become small, but you see there in that verse, they would be utterly small, that English word is, okay? The reason that utterly is there is because the Hebrew word for small is an emphatic word. It's as small as you can possibly get. It's like nothing. And so we add the word utterly. in. In other words, You will be absolutely nothing. Okay? You will be brought down. You are prideful. You think that you are impenetrable. You think that you are this powerful nation but you're going to be brought down. Uh, when they became a nation, they were built actually way up in the clefts of the rocks. Okay, I know we often don't think of the Middle Eastern area as being very mountainy, but if you've ever been over there or seen pictures, there is a lot of mountains. Okay, And Edom was built right in the clefts of the rocks. In fact, in verse four right there, you see an analogy given for how high they were. It says you soared like the eagles or, or you had your dwelling amongst the stars, it said. And so uh, they were very, very protected as a nation. Many people who traveled through the region actually today, talk about how easy it would have been to actually protect this place as a nation before we had planes and, and things that could actually travel up into the heights. Because they said that as you were walking, sometimes the, the cliffs of the rocks would get about as narrow where only one person could walk through, and to your right would be a 3,000-foot drop off into the middle of nothing. So you can imagine as you're trying to bring your warriors up to take over Edom, and you got to walk one by one down this little, all they got to do is push you off, right? And that's the end of you. You're not taking their... Na- or They're a city over, okay? And so they felt very, very, very protected. They couldn't expand much, but they were very, very protected as a nation. Who is mightier than the Lord, though? Who is mightier than the Lord? The God who can see even their thoughts, we see there in verse 3, says, I even see what you're thinking, it says, will also war against them, it says in verse 4, and bring them down to the ground. You think that you are high and lofty, God says? You don't know me then. He will bring them down to the ground. They're no match for God Almighty. Let's keep reading verse five. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, your, her treasure sought out, and your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter." Okay, this is where God is giving his battle cry, right? Like if you watch war movies or, 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 or heroic movies that were set in, in ancient war scenes, somebody would go out before the troops and they would go, we're going to take this nation and, and this is why we're going to take them. Hoorah! And everybody went, hoorah! I thought one person would do it with me. That's okay. Um, so, right, they gave the battle cry. This is God's battle cry here. He says, you think you're something? Watch this, right, God says. In verse five through six, God gives an analogy to them. He says, hey, when people steal grapes from you, right, like a a grape was one of the things they harvested, like don't they leave some of the grapes on the vines when they come and they glean from you? Now, why would they do that? Because if you're stealing grapes, you're either doing it by night so you can't see all the grapes or you're stealing. You don't want to get caught. So you try to get it rather quickly. You're going to leave some behind. Same is true with the thief says, If the thief came, they wouldn't take every single thing that you owned, right? Like even right now, if a thief was in your house, sorry to paint that picture in your head though. All right. But like, they wouldn't take every single thing you owned. Like your socks would be left in your drawer, right? Like, because they're trying to hurry. God says, not true with you. I'm going to come like a thief, but I will wipe out everything that you own. He says, there will be nothing left of you. Not a a single grape will be left in your nation, right? He'll dismantle all of who they are. Notice too, all the power that Esau had, by the way, or that Edom had, right? We already talked about their dwelling in verses three and four. They were uh, on a high dwelling. They were deeply protected, right? But they also had great riches, verse six says. Uh, They had allies, it says in verse seven. They had wisdom and wise men, it says there in verse 8, and they had great soldiers, it says in verse 9. So they were protected, they were secure, they were rich, they had wisdom, there were all these things. So could you imagine when they received this letter from this little wee dude named Obadiah, all right, who had just gotten taken into captivity to Babylon, who is he to write this letter to them, right? Like, imagine how they would have received that. They probably scoffed at this, right? Like, what is this man? Nobody could take their nation. They were protected. They didn't need. However, God said that all of this would be undone. He said their heights would be brought low in verse four. He said their riches would be plundered in verse six. He said that their allies would turn against her in verse seven. Their wise men would be destroyed. And in great irony, though they were wise men, they couldn't realize that the allies We're going to turn against them. So for all of their wisdom, they were still blinded in that wisdom. And then that their soldiers would be slaughtered, it says in verse 9, which is just an aggressive word in and of itself, right? Slaughter, okay? Um, God is not playing around here. He's going to completely dismantle them, all right? Now, we have to ask, why is God so mad at Edom? Because some of you may be a little bit uncomfortable right now what's happening, right? Why is he so mad? Let's keep reading verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and, and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster and the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth and the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over the survivors in the day of distress. Edom was Jacob's brother, as we had mentioned before. So Edom Edom, out of all the nations that were around Israel, should have actually been the nation that was trying to protect their brother, right? Like back in the day, you got to think, right? It's not like today where we have allies, where you kind of just ally with people who are either really close to you or have a ton of power. That's not what it was like back then, okay? There was a ton of family relationships. You read the genealogies in the Bible and you're like, why are these in here? Because that was important to them, right? Like they could all see, Edom knew that he had descended from Jacob as well, all All of the Edomites had to have known that. And so they knew that Israel was their brother, came from the same uh, great, great, great grandfather, right? But yet they let him be cut off. And so in verse 10, God says, shame will cover you. And shame is such a stark contrast to pride, isn't it? The pride that they had earlier on, he says, no, no, no. Shame's gonna cover you instead. Okay. And so he continues to go. Um, Some quick Bible hermeneutics here. Okay. I know I mentioned this often, but I think it's important. I don't want you to just hear the word. I want you to be able to to read the word and to discern it yourself. All right. So in the Bible, uh, oftentimes uh, when it wants to stress something, it repeats itself. Repetition. So repetition in the Bible is kind of our version of bold or italics or underline or things such as that. Okay. Did you see what God was trying to stress here then? What phrase kept being said? Did anybody catch it? Totally, in the day of the Lord, right? It's actually mentioned nine times in four verses. So what day, we have to ask? Okay. What is the day of the Lord? Well, the day for, or what is the day? In the day. The day for Israel was the day they got destroyed. Okay. So they should have came to be helping their brother out in that very day, but instead they stood aloof, scripture says. And so God is going to punish them for this. But you're actually going to see another play on words here in this next section, which is why I wanted to highlight that. The day of the Lord we're going to read about is a very, very, very common theme throughout scripture. Over and over and over again, we see this theme, the day of the Lord. So God's kind of playing with words here. He's highlighting, hey, in their day, you didn't help. So here comes your day, he's going to say, right? They took advantage of the situation. Notice the poetic structure that's here too, by the way. In verse 12, they boasted over Israel, but shame is going to cover them. It says in verse 10, Boast versus shame. In verse 13, they looted Israel's wealth. But in verse six, we already read God's going to loot their wealth. In verse 14a, they cut off Israel. They were not allies to them, but God's going to use their allies against them. We already read in verse seven. And then in verse 14b, he handed Israel over on the day of his distress. But in verses eight and nine, he will cause Israel to, or Edom to be handed over, and he will cause Edom to have distress. In other words, you reap what you sow. Okay, that's what we're reading. God's going to pay back on their head what they had given to them, okay? Now, this is different than karma, all right? We do not believe in karma as Christians. We do believe, however, that you do reap what you sow. What that means is, and we see this even in Romans 2, where it talks about how God's going to judge the nations. In Romans 2, he actually says that all of us are gonna stand before our account with the own words that we gave out of our own mouth. What does he mean? What he means is, whenever you said, that person's so stupid, (laughs) I can't believe he would do something like that. God's going to like press play and you're going to hear yourself saying that. And then he's going to show you the 733 times that you did that yourself in your life. And you're going to condemn yourself. right? And when he said, that person is such a fool, shouldn't he know better? Shouldn't they help in this situation? Shouldn't they? God's just going to play and play and you're going to condemn yourself with your own word, showing you don't even necessarily need like the word of God to condemn you, though it does at times. Like your own words do that to you. Your own words show that you do not hold yourself to the standard that you set toward other people. There's a sense where you reap what you sow. In Galatians chapter six, verse seven, you don't have to turn there because I think it'll be on the screen, um, but it says, do not be deceived. Okay, why? God is not mocked. You can't do something and then think God's not gonna do anything about it. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God stresses that Edom's gonna be destroyed in other letters too. In Jeremiah, Edom is destroyed. In Joel chapter three, verse 19, it says, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in the lamb. In other words, you reap what you sow, okay? Now, let's keep reading, because I know this is heavy right now, but verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. There's the same phrase again, right? For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their... Uh, Their own possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. We talked about already the day of the Lord is a common theme throughout Scripture. Matter of fact, it says that exact phrase, the day of the Lord, 23 times in just the Old Testament. And every single time that it's mentioned, it's in reference to a final type of judgment. Okay, so usually it kind of has dual meaning. It has a immediate meaning, like they're going to be judged at this immediate moment, but it also has an eternal meaning that in the end, they too will be judged for the things that they have done. So there's a reference to both, okay? So remember, they afflicted Israel on, on their day. So God's going to afflict them on their day of judgment and not just on their day of judgment, but until once the world ends, once God comes back to judge the living and the dead, they will be judged again there, eternally judged right? God says he's promising that there will be one day where Edom will be completely destroyed. That's called the day of the Lord. And that on this final day is when everything will be made right once and for all. Everything will be set new again, okay? Now, in case you're wondering, did this prophecy come true, all right? Have any of you ever visited the nation of Edom? No. No. Why? Because it is no longer a nation, right? Now you could go to where Edom was and they'd say, oh, this is historic Edom, but it's something totally different now, right? Soon after this letter was written, the Edomites sure enough had their allies turn against them. Somebody fell asleep at the gate, uh, uh, history tells us. Uh, The person came and they opened up the gate and the floods came through at night and all of a sudden they were taken captive and they destroyed everything because not only did they go and plunder, but they actually lived there. So erasing all of Edom's history. There's not much history you can find about Edom, actually, outside of scriptural references. There's some, we know it existed, but this nation, I mean, they completely destroyed Edom, okay? God followed through on his promise. They were completely destroyed. Let's finish this book. Verse 19. Those of the Negev shall possess uh, Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the cities in the Nagab. Survivors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. God gives one last promise to Israel, okay? That they would be restored one day. Hence the last phrase, that they shall be the Lord's, okay? Now, you may be thinking, what the heck does this mean for us today? All right? Like maybe you're feeling a little bit like, man, this is kind of heavy or whatever it may be. I think that it actually means tons for us today, okay? And so let me explain. First of all, some of you can very much relate to Israel right now, okay? You may feel down and out. You may feel in distress, you may feel like people who were supposed to be close to you have looted you, have deceived you, have not protected you the way they were supposed to. Maybe you grew up in that type of household where you felt like you were supposed to have this hedge of protection, right? Like just how we just prayed with, with family dedication, like the mother and the father were supposed to be there, but for some reason they weren't, or a brother and sister wasn't. You can feel like Israel in a lot of ways, okay? Okay. Notice the promise that God gives in the end of this book to Israel is the exact same promise he gives to us in the New Testament. That one day you will be restored. That one day you will be restored. Okay, I don't know what's happened, right? I'm sure that many of us can have that type of story. But if you are a people of God, if you are the chosen people of God, if you have believed in Christ Jesus, your Lord, and become his child, just like Israel was a child of God, you too hold the same type of promise that one day God will restore all things. And so you have that promise just as Israel did, okay? But I think there's an even bigger application to most of us in here today. All right, I'm sure that a lot of us can also kind of apply that, but we live in a culture that is infatuated with pride. We are in fact, Matter of fact, pride is no longer something to be looked down on in the culture. It's actually kind of something to, to be boasted in kind of like, it's kind of good if you're a little bit prideful, right? And so all the movies that we see, we kind of like the prideful character a little bit more. He's cast not in a negative light, but in a neutral or even a positive light. Like he knows what he's talking about or like she knows what she's doing or whatever it may be. We are infatuated with pride, right? We're prideful in our country, thinking that we're safe. And so rather than trusting in the Lord, as Scripture calls us to, we trust in our government in a lot of ways, right? It's October, November, we could talk about that, right? Like, the next person will deliver us! That's pride and the wrong thing. We're prideful in our country in a lot of ways. We're prideful in our wisdom, right? We think we're so smart, right? Like, like we are the most advanced, the best nation that's ever existed, the best people that have ever been alive. We're, we're so smart. Look at the technology that we're making. Look at the whatever it may be that we forget to lean into the wisdom of the Lord, right? We're prideful in our riches and in our comfort, right? Most of us who think we're not rich are in the top 5% of the world in wealth, right? And so we we take comfort in that. We take a sense of pride in that. We forget that we need the Lord for our daily bread, that he actually holds every one of our breaths in his hand. We forget about that, right? We're prideful in our security or in our ideologies or God forbid, even in our religion, right? Like we're, we're prideful in a lot of these things. We, we think that we are better than somebody else because of the way that we do blank or the way that we live in blank. So we are a better nation than this nation because we do this better or we are a better people or I'm a better person than this dummy over here, okay? Because he doesn't do what I do and it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in pride. We don't even realize that we're doing it. I think that this has a lot. What warning does this book give us about pride? What warning? A false hope, what a false hope pride gives us those who find our security apart from God. Pride gives us such a false hope If we find our security apart from God, if you find your hope, if you find your joy, if you find your strength, your security, whatever it may be apart from God, then this is pride. And all throughout scripture, we read the phrase, God hates pride. God even hates the pride full, it says. God will destroy pride, okay? So because we feel safe, our pride makes us think that we're not needy. I mean, literally, literally, as I was writing this this week, this made my heart hurt thinking about how prideful we are. We are such a prideful people. Now, here's why I know it's easy to think this. Because we think we can ignore all of God's wrath in the Bible because we don't like it. So we want to paint God the way that we want to paint him. Right? You tracking with me? Okay. I mean, can you, you can say hey, amen. I do that. Right? Like, like I, I don't necessarily like this God all the time, so I want to paint him a little bit differently. I want him to look like what I think he should look like. But then isn't that my God? <laughs> isn't that actually just me? Well, I'm projecting that I think God should be. So we think we can ignore it. We want a fluffy God, right? The God of love, we say, okay? The God that's dancing through the lilies, right? We don't want the God that's gonna come destroy the nations. And so we think we can ignore places like this, but don't miss me here, okay? God is a God of love. Matter of fact, God is love, (laughs) Scripture says, God is literally love, okay? If you want love, you look at God. God is the embodiment of love. The problem is that in our watered down, media-driven, cheap, plastic forms of love today, we don't see passages like this as beautiful as they're supposed to be seen. We actually take offense at them at times, right? To use our sermon bumper, which we didn't even fully see, but we have tainted love, (laughs) right? Like our love has been tainted. We see it in a different way. We don't see love in its pure and perfect form. So wrath doesn't even calculate or compute to us because for us, love is butterflies and puppy dogs, right? Like that's what we think love is, okay? So this type of love doesn't calculate, okay? Like think of it like this, all right? Um, If someone slaps my wife, okay, and then spits in her face, and I'm standing there and I'm looking at it, and I just go, I just kind of walk away, okay? Would that be showing love for my wife? Come on, get a little bit cultured, all right? No, not at all, right? In fact, couldn't you even question my love for my wife at that moment? Like, wouldn't you look at me and go, hold on, bro. Isn't that your wife, all right? Like, listen, if that happened, there's a 98% chance that I will be fired from the well and I will be starting up a prison ministry because I will be in jail, okay, right? And so somebody's like, hey, what you're in for? Somebody spit on my wife, man, and slapped her. You wanna know about Jesus? That would be my new life, okay? Because I would try to annihilate the dude, all right? Maybe, I, maybe he's big, I don't know, but I would try, okay? I would try, right? If you wanna get me fired from the well, go ahead and do that, Okay. Now, why would I respond like this? Because I'm just an out of control, raging, angry man? No, nobody would think that about me at that moment. Now, maybe there's a little bit of a better way to respond than just to annihilate him, right? But nobody would think I was a a raging lunatic, right? Why would you not think that? Because you know that some measure of wrath is good. You would know that I love my wife, you would know that I'm jealous for her, that I want to protect her, that I want to, to make sure that, that her, her, her joy is found, that, that her comfort is found, that I want her to be whole, not to be looked down on or, or spit upon or, or slapped around like a piece of property. You would know that I love my wife. Intrinsic in all of us is an understanding that wrath is not necessarily a bad thing. In moments like that, we actually call that love right we know that there is a time when wrath is actually needed now listen imagine that love that i just said okay and then times that by infinity because my love is faulty my love is skewed my love is very human but god's love we just say god is love so the type of anger that i feel imagine what god must feel at sin Imagine what that must make God feel like because we forget God has created every single person in this room, on this planet, in his image. Psalm 139 says that he was knitting us together in our mother's womb. He was intimate with us. He, matter of fact, created all of creation. And so when we actually sin against God, what we're doing is spitting on the face of his creation. We're spitting on the things that he loves. And God's wrath then does not seem like such a negative thing. God wants to protect. God wants to comfort. God wants to be the provider for the people that he's created. Do you see why God hates sin? Sin is a spit in the face in what he's done. Sin is a slap in the face in what God has created. God hates sin so much that he decided to suffer and to be crucified for it not just dying, but actually taking on the full anger, listen, and the full wrath of God, okay? God took on the full anger, the full wrath of God so that sin could be paid for. This is love, my friends. It wasn't that God's anger, God's wrath was just kind of cast aside. No, he actually poured it out on Christ Jesus. It was there, it was present, okay? So think of it like this. If you don't have a God who punishes sin and who destroys sin, who wipes it out completely, okay, if you do not have a God that is like that, you do realize that there'll be sin in heaven, right? Like if God doesn't destroy sin completely, then there will be sin in heaven. So then you will get to heaven and it may be nice for a moment, but sooner or later we'll mess things up just like Israel did when they had their own king and it'll probably get worse and worse. And at some point heaven will turn into hell. Now who wants to go there? Nobody? What? (laughs) Right? Nobody wants to go there, right? Nobody wants to go to a place that will still be laden with sin, that will still have the burden of sin, where we can still be hurt. We want God to get rid of sin. And he promises that he will, because God is love. In order to destroy it, he has to destroy it. It has to be wiped out, right? God is full of wrath. But listen, not like an out-of-control, abusive father or, or like an out-of-control, abusive man. And that's the problem is that often we think of God's wrath in terms of our own wrath. So when we get mad, we know that there's sin in our hearts. When we see somebody else's anger, we know that that's not fully good. We can't paint God like a human. We have to realize that he is a perfect God and his wrath is perfect, He will judge correctly the nations, right? God hates sin. He hates it. He hates sin. It makes him furious. God hates sin so much that he would give up his son for sin. Don't miss this. This is one of the heart of the Christian message. So either people committing the sins has to pay the penalty of God's wrath or somebody else does. Either the people that have been flagrant against God that have spit in his face have to pay the penalty for sin or somebody else does, and God in his great love, and in his great holiness, and his great wrath, and his great justice, but also in his great mercy, and in his great grace, and his great compassionate kindness, has provided a way through Christ the King Jesus. Through Jesus, we can actually avert the wrath of God. This is the beauty of a book like this, okay? See, all of us are actually like Edom. All of us are like Edom in a lot of ways, okay? We've sinned against the Lord because we, we, we don't think that we deserve justice and punishment. We're angry, we're prideful, right? Like even right now, I know the temptation for us is to kind of fold our arms. Maybe we won't do it physically, but in our hearts, right? Kind of smack our lips at something like this. Yeah, right, <laughs> right? Not realizing that that's actually making the same mistake that es- uh, uh, Esau did. You receive a letter, Man, God is angry. God will judge sin. And you go, yeah, right. The same mistake that Edom made. This is pride, right? This is us saying that we're not accountable to God, that he doesn't control our every breath, that we don't have to give an account before him. Friends, please, please, man, don't be prideful. Don't be prideful. Be humble. Be humble before the Lord. You owe him your very breath okay? You are not your own God of your body. God is God. He created you. He is sovereign. He is king. Don't fold your arms as if you're not responsible to God. You are. You are his creation. You are his people. And in our sin, like Edom, we deserve punishment. That's what we deserve. And we can choose to fold our arms or we can look at the one who unfolded his arms and stretched them on the cross and was nailed to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That's one of the beauties of Christ in the gospel is that in Christ, the wrath of God was poured out onto him. He would pay the penalty for our sins. Instead of us paying like we were supposed to, Jesus Christ, the son of God would come down and would pay the penalty for all of the sins that we have committed, All of the pride, all of the trusting in our wealth or on our own security or in our own wisdom or in our allies or whatever it may have been, Jesus would pay for all of that. Through faith in Christ, we can avert God's judgment because God has judged his son for us and then would judge us as faithful. See, notice even in these books, like think about this, okay? God isn't just like writing this book just to announce that he's going to judge them. Why did God send this letter to Edom in the first place? because he was trying to help them repent, right? Like if Edom would have received the letter and went, oh shoot, God is real, he's right. Let's stop doing this. Let's, let's, let's actually turn to the Lord. We're sorry, God. God would have forgiven them. We see him do that with Nineveh through Jonah, Right, like God would avert the justice again. He's trying to give them time to repent. God longs for forgiveness. Matter of fact, in scripture, in Romans, it says that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Like God does not want to judge his people. That's not what he wants to do, but he does have to destroy sin because he's a just God. And so he tries to give time, tries to give time, tries to give warning, shows them through love, shows them through blessing, shows them through famine, shows them through judgment, shows and shows and shows to try, try to show that we are accountable to God, that he is a good God, one who we should long to be friends with. He wants to restore them as a people. He wants to restore you as a person. He wants to restore you. He doesn't want to destroy you, okay? That's not the character of our God. Matter of fact, as you read through the Old Testament, it's easy to say, man, God was such a wrathful God. Except what we forget is that God would write a letter and then 60 years would go by, there'd be no repentance, so he'd write another letter. And then 60 years would go by and he'd write another letter. And then 60 years would go by and God gives them so much time to try to repent. God is longing for their repentance, right? Like I try this frequently with Micaiah, okay? I literally tried this this morning, right? Micaiah, please, please don't do that, baby girl. Okay. That's not right. Hey, Micaiah, please stop throwing a fit. Micaiah, 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 listen, I don't want you to get in trouble. And I'm serious, right? Micaiah, please don't smack me in the face. Okay. I don't want you to get in trouble. Micaiah, Micaiah, destruction. I'm just kidding. I don't destroy her. (laughs) Right? No, but I do warn. I warn and then I punish, right? Like God does this with the nations. He does this with us. He warns and he warns and he warns. And he's warning, right? The reason why it's hard for us to understand God's wrath is because we usually focus on it through our own mess and through our own lens. God's anger isn't like our anger. God is pure. God's anger is pure because of that. And he rightly judges sin. In Christ, okay, if you have placed your faith in Christ, though you are like Edom, you can be made like Israel. Uh, At least say amen in your hearts. (laughs) Through faith in Christ, though you are like Edom, You can be made like Israel, God's chosen people, God's chosen nation, who he will restore one day, where he will bring to a whole nature again, where there will be no more sin, where there will be no more tears, where there will be a nation again, a people of God, right? You can be God's people again, okay? And Christians, family, okay, please listen. Um, Do you know that the day of the Lord will come one day? Do you realize that? It's easy to forget about in our culture, The day of the Lord is going to come. We promise. Every book in the New Testament talks about it right? The Bible ends with saying "Maranetha," which is a Hebrew word, come quickly, Lord. Amen. Like, let it be. God is going to come one day and he will wipe away every tear and everything that harms you right now, all of the Edom that's out there against us, even our own flesh, when it acts like Edom toward us, God will destroy one day through his son and make us a people again, and we will be safe and secure. Man, hope for the day of the Lord hope for the day of the Lord, long for it to come. The only reason he hasn't yet is because he's patient, not wanting people to perish, First Peter says. I'm for sure as heck glad he's patient because if he would have came 15 years ago, I would have still been his enemy. But he was patient with me, not wanting me to be destroyed. So he allowed me to act flagrant in my sin and then show me the beauty of Christ and allowed me to place my faith in him that I can be his child again. And I'm sure many of you have that same story right where Christ has rescued you and redeemed you okay we read there in revelation even at the very end Christ comes like a warrior again sword coming out of his mouth fire in his eyes right if you want a sign if you want a picture of your deliverer read revelation 19 okay where Jesus is no longer the lamb slain but the lion conquering who will rescue us we will be married to Christ our eternal husband God offers grace to us all and he wants us to know him and to have a relationship with him and to not punish us, but to punish his son for us. This is how much God loves you. But it only makes sense in light of the wrath of God. It only makes sense when we realize that God hates sin and that he's going to destroy it. And God wants everybody to respond to God's grace in humility. Listen, if you respond to God's grace and humility, you realize that you have everything to gain, right? If you respond to God's grace and humility, you have everything to gain. But if you spurn the grace of God in pride and arrogance, you have everything to lose. Don't spurn the grace of God. It's been extended for you through Christ. Have faith in him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Be humble before the Lord. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, I know how easy it is to fold our hands at you because for a long time, God, I I folded my hands. Lord, I I relied on my own strength. I began to think, who is the Lord? Who am I? I don't have to be accountable to him. God, I heard about you growing up and and I I didn't want you. I didn't want anything to do with you, God. God, my God, I thank you for being patient with me. God, for forgiving me. And I pray that even today, God, that you would do that for others. Listen, as as you're still praying, I know that there are some of you that are probably wrestling over this issue even. And I I really do. I I hope you've been at the well before. I hope you've been around your friend before where you hear about the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and the beauty of God and the wonder of God and, and the promises of God. And I hope that those allure you too, that those draw you in. But I know that some of us don't receive the good news because we have never really even heard the bad news. And the bad news is that we actually deserve punishment for our sins. But the good news is that this can be cleared in Christ. And so I would encourage you, if if you haven't trusted in Christ yet as your Lord and Savior, or if you're unsure of whether or not you're a Christian, if you don't know if you're a friend or an enemy, if you're Israel or Edom, then man, please talk to somebody after service. There'll be elders up here, elders' wives up here that would want to pray with you. Man, please come up and, and talk to them. Talk to me. I would love to talk to you. I would love to show you the beauty and the mercy of God. How you can avert God's judgment how you can be saved. His love can cover over every offense. And Christ, we thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you for covering every offense. God, I pray for that, those of us who do know Christ, that this is one of the reasons that we want other people to hear about him. I pray that we would not be cowardly in our proclamation of the gospel, that we would be bold and say, there's a savior for our sins. God, that we would love the men and women around us, our our neighbors, our our coworkers, our, our family, and that we would tell the man, God loves you, God loves you. He loves you. He wants you to have a relationship with him. He's made a way through his son. Would we as a church be proclaimers of the good news of the gospel that in you, Jesus, we have forgiveness of all of our sin, all of our burden, all of our guilt. God, make us humble before you. And in your great love, judge your son as guilty so that through faith in you, God, you can judge us as pure. That feels like an absurd request. The grace of God, the scandalous grace, you have made a way and we rejoice in this. And Jesus is very precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.